Hey guys, what is up? And welcome to the ninth episode of Grow Series and MCAT Review Podcast. We'll continue with psychology and sociology here, as you can expect. And I'm thinking at this point, there's probably going to be one, maybe two more episodes on psychology and sociology after this one. And then boom, we're done. So real close to the finish line here. At the time of recording this, the coronavirus thing I talked about in episode seven became a way bigger deal than we all thought. It's funny, in episode seven, I mentioned the mass hysteria, but I was mostly thinking of those Asian countries that were struggling with it at that time. But honestly, at this point, it's a worldwide phenomenon. So it's interesting to see how things kind of unravel over such a short period of time. So in this episode, I'll be talking about social behavior, things like attachment, aggression, altruism, you know, all that stuff. Then I'll get into social interactions. And we touched on discrimination and prejudice before, but uh, that stuff will continue now. I'll basically really get into social behavior. Then I'm going to pivot into learning objective nine, talking about society and culture as if we weren't talking about that, you know, this whole time, but whatever. Things like social institutions, the economy, healthcare, theories on society in both a large-scale perspective and going into the details. And then I'll end with three high-yield topics, conflict theory, social constructionism, and symbolic interactionism. So let's not waste any time, let's jump right in. So with who you are, you got to realize where you are means a lot. You know, if I was raised in Taiwan, I would have a completely different personality than I have now being raised in America. That geographical proximity is huge. It's the biggest factor to decide who you chill with and even who you end up marrying. People usually don't marry outside of their general region. A word you got to know that relates to this is the mere exposure effect. When we constantly see something, we start to like it. And that happens to me with music. You know, first listen, I'll be like, all right, this is kind of trash. But then I start listening a bit more and I'm like, dang, this is actually really good. And then I kind of get addicted to the song. Just because of that mere exposure, we're like, hey, this is pretty fire. Speaking of marriage, physical attraction is pretty huge with social behavior. There's things that are universally attractive like skin clarity, body symmetry, making a podcast about the MCAT, and good hygiene. But there's specifics for each gender. You know, for men, it's a muscular body, strong jaw, etc. For women, it's that waist-to-hip ratio, high cheekbones, and more. The main thing you got to draw from this, though, is that biologically, sexual dimorphism reigns supreme. Sexual dimorphism is the differences in size and appearance between sexes. So the bigger the difference is, the more attractive it is. So kind of similar to people bonding based on geographical location, we also bond based on beliefs. You know, your friends probably have pretty similar beliefs and values to you, but that can also lead to false consensus, where you think everyone shares your opinion on something even if they don't. False consensus happens a lot in politics. People are in their own little bubble. They don't realize that their opinions are often not expressed by the whole population. So to wrap up this first part, basically know the mere exposure effect. We like things after we get used to them. Then understand people like high sexual dimorphism, biologically females like males who are masculine and males like females who are feminine. And then the word false consensus is when you think everyone shares your opinion on something, even if that isn't true. All right, next topic here is attachment. The main thing you got to know with attachment, something that gets mentioned a lot and it's pretty popular, is the Harlow monkey experiment. It's kind of mean, not going to lie. They basically separated newborn monkeys from their mothers at birth. And then they gave them a choice between two monkey-looking structures that they made, one that looked like their mom but was made of wire, and another that looked like their mom but had a nice warm cloth blanket on it. The monkeys chose that blanket mother look-alike, and then they did everything with it. They ate with their cloth mom, they slept with their cloth mom, etc. The cloth blanket mom was comfy and secure, and the baby monkeys got attached. A big thing with attachment is secure versus insecure attachment. There was a study by Mary Ainsworth where they had a baby and a mom chilling in a room, then the mom left, and after a few minutes, she came back. They judged how the baby reacted. Of course, the baby's going to be sad when the mom leaves. You know, that's just human nature. But they recorded the nature of the baby when the mom came back. They came to the conclusion that securely attached babies were happy when the mom came back, and they weren't as upset anymore. But insecurely attached babies were crying, upset, all that. This all really developed from the parenting style. If a mom is sensitive to their child, you know, they care for it, they're responsive, then the child has that secure attachment. If they don't do those things, if they're not caring for it, if they're not as responsive, surprise, the kid has an insecure attachment. Also, huge point here, we have three parenting styles, and I hate it because they really screwed everyone over by making two of them sound identical, but um, they're authoritarian, permissive, and authoritative. 
So obviously authoritarian and authoritative sound super similar, but they're pretty different. The way I differentiated it is, you know, authoritarian is a bad one. So on the word authoritarian, you know, it ends with I-A-N. So I basically just made up a story about a father named Ian, you know, I-A-N, who was a bit of a mean parent. So authoritarian parenting is when the rude dad named Ian has big expectations and doesn't really congratulate his kids if they reach those expectations. But if they don't reach those expectations, they get punished badly. Basically, Ian is never happy. He's authoritarian. <laughs> then there's permissive parenting where the parents are basically your homies. They don't see you as kids, but like friends. But the fact that they have low demands for you means they don't push you hard to achieve things, which is negative. So they have low expectations, but then they also don't really push you for it. Finally, the GOAT, the greatest one, is authoritative. Here, parents are both homies and they also have high demands for you. They want their kids to be something and they're happy that their kids are something, you know, unlike that guy Ian, the authoritarian. So basically, authoritative good, authoritarian bad. So another big social behavior here is aggression. Aggression comes from a combo of biology, psychology, and society. Basically, just like everything else we study in psychology and sociology, but whatever. So people can be predisposed to aggression just based on their genetics, right? Biology. The frontal lobe, it's all about impulse control and criminals, people who are often violent, have lower frontal lobe activation. Also psychological, now yeah, that's biological in a way since psychology is kind of biology, but basically you got to know two high yield principles with aggression. Number one, the frustration aggression principle, where frustration leads to anger, which leads to aggression. The name itself, frustration aggression principle, gives you two thirds of the, the pathway here. Frustration to anger to aggression. Pretty simple, honestly, not too bad. Then there's reinforcement modeling. That's broad. It's not only for aggression. People use it for other things, but it's where people get more aggressive if they get positive reinforcement. So let's go to parenting for an example. Let's say there's a parent who gets frustrated when their kid has a temper tantrum and then they cave in, right? They do what the kid wants. Well, the kid knows it works, so they keep throwing temper tantrums. That's reinforcement modeling. Last one here is sociocultural. We act more aggressive in groups because, like mentioned in episode seven, de-individuation. All right, then altruism. Altruism is doing good things without the expectation of a prize or anything like that. Altruism is actually kind of a mixed thing because people think that you thinking highly of yourself after doing something good is in fact a reward itself. So therefore, true altruism doesn't exist. But I mean, you don't really need to know that for the MCAT. So whatever, let's move on. There's reasons for altruism like kin selection. We're more altruistic to people who are related to us. Then there's reciprocal altruism, which is when we're nicer if we know we're going to see that person again, which is why people let loose on their last day of school, on a job, you know, whatever. Finally, there's cost signaling. You're signaling to other people that you give things, you're a nice person, and you're trustworthy. People trust you more if you help others. So those are three reasons for altruism here. Kin selection, reciprocal altruism, and cost signaling. And then wrapping up social behavior, let's talk about interactions. Be warned, this section has a lot of uh, vocab words. So social interactions are all focused on status, which is a person's social position in society. We have a lot of statuses, you know, being a son, being a student, etc. Your status changes how people interact with you, but it's not always negative. You know, like your status as your dad's kid definitely makes him act differently with you than if you were a random stranger. So being a son is a status that helps you. Um, another example of status is friends versus professors. You know, friends are equal to you, but if you're interacting with a professor, you act a little different because in an academic status, they're superior to you in knowledge, you know, education. There's also ascribed statuses, which are things you can't change and you get them from birth. You know, they're ascribed to you. Things like being a prince of a royal family, that's something that, you know, that gets placed on you at birth. Achieve status, on the other hand, is something you earn. And achieve status that I'm assuming everyone who's listening to this wants is the status of a doctor. It's something you work for, something you earn, but it affects how people talk to you. And let's say you got that achieve status of a doctor and you start working at a hospital, but you start realizing all the issues that come with administration and healthcare politics, you know, that really messes with the quality of care you planned on giving when you signed up to be a doctor. That's called role strain. 
So it's when you have tension within one status. And that's the important thing here. There's tension here, but it's all involved with your role as a doctor, one status. The next thing is role conflict, conflict between two different statuses, unlike role strain. So conflict is between two or more different statuses. Role strain is like the tension within one. Role conflict is like, you know, someone who's not only a doctor, but they also have to juggle that with being a parent, a husband or a wife, a friend, etc. Another thing here is primary and secondary groups. Like I said, decent amount of vocab here with social interactions. The primary group involves the closest members of a group to you. So most obvious example here is your family. You know, that's an obvious primary group. Secondary groups, a little more formal. They're based on more of a short-term goal. So if I'm in a group project in my microbio class, I maybe meet with my partners a few times a week for one or two weeks. I accomplish that task and then I'm done. Secondary groups have a limited purpose. Primary groups have a much more deeper emotional meaning. That's, you know, not too bad. But with any group, you obviously want to make a good impression. Impression management is huge. You want people to see you a certain way and that role may change. So if I'm talking to a teacher, how I show myself is different than if I'm talking to a friend. And that's really reflected by a thing called the dramaturgical approach. So this dramaturgical approach is made by Irving Goffman. Basically, the dramaturgical approach said people guide and control how they're seen. And, you know, he thought people had two parts of dramaturgy to them. Dramaturgy is basically the theory of drama. So think of it as like a play. There's a front stage and a backstage, right? The front stage is what the crowd sees. It's what shows up in a social setting. The backstage is more of a private area of our lives when the play is over and you can be yourself. So my front stage with a professor might be me talking about quantum physics, but then when I'm done, I can put on some little Uzi and jam out as I exit his office, you know, front stage, backstage. All right, so on a not so smooth transition from dramaturgy, we'll move on to discrimination. Now, before I start, I got to differentiate discrimination and prejudice. Discrimination, it's a treatment. Prejudice is an attitude. So discrimination is treating a minority differently Prejudice is judging a group negatively and often incorrectly based on stereotypes. So discrimination will be like a law firm preferring to hire men over women, but prejudice is like the CEO of a business thinking that men are better than women. So clearly the thought process here is harmful and negative, but one is an action, discrimination, and the other is thinking, prejudice. Within discrimination, it's important to know the differentiation between individual discrimination and institutional discrimination but that's pretty easy you know one has to do with individuals discriminating and the other has to do with whole institutions discriminating so if we go back to that example of a law firm preferring to hire men over women what is that individual discrimination or institutional it's institutional because the law firm is pushing women down in this scenario it's the whole firm it's an institution Discrimination has long-term side effects, and they're also pretty important to know for the MCAT. There's two words you got to know, side effect discrimination and past and present discrimination. So side effect discrimination just shows how deeply entrenched discrimination can be. So let's just say there are some African Americans in a small town in Alabama, and studies show that they get arrested at an abnormally higher rate than normal, and they also get an unfair verdict that says they're guilty at an abnormally higher rate. Then maybe five years down the road, they move to Denver, give themselves a better life and a better job, right? They're trying to, at least. What happens then? Their criminal record plagues their resume for their whole career. You know, the side effects of the discrimination of a judge and an officer in one town can transform into something that affects this person's whole life. So that's side effect discrimination. Past in present discrimination talks about how things done in the past, even if they've changed, have consequences for people in the present So an example of that is like recruiting someone from a specific ethnic group to specific inferior jobs. Okay, so we discussed institutional discrimination, but what is the purpose of institutions, organizations, all that stuff? You know, a cult and a restaurant, they're both organizations, but how do we define them as different? So organizations, they're just institutions that have a specific purpose. There's utilitarian organizations where people are paid for their work. So, you know, that law firm I was talking about earlier, that's a utilitarian organization. Any job basically is involved with a utilitarian organization. Normative organization is when members come together for a specific goal. 
So religion is normative. And then there's coercive organizations. That's where members don't really have a choice about their membership. So this is where the cults come in. Cults are a coercive organization. So I talked about Lil Uzi earlier on that similar topic is Heaven's Gate. That's a cult. Google it if you want. Pretty crazy story. That's a coercive organization. So organizations, they achieve maximum efficiency through bureaucracy. So bureaucratization is where organizations basically gradually become more governed by laws and policy. So with bureaucracies, Max Weber thought no matter what the goal of the organization is, there's five main characteristics needed. Number one is division of labor. Two is hierarchy of organization. Three is written rules and regulations. Four is impersonality. And five is employment based on qualifications. To remember that Weber's theory of bureaucracy has five characteristics, just think of Weber's name. Weber has five letters, so there's five characteristics of bureaucracies. So with division of labor, you train people to do specific tasks. The good thing is increased efficiency, but the bad thing is you isolate the workers and can have a risk of over-specializing them so much so that they can't really focus on the overall picture. Of course, it depends organization to organization. For example, for a big corporation, they're obviously going to separate the advertising people from the graphic designers. It just doesn't make sense to teach people both. The next thing is hierarchy of organization. Having authority at each point is important. You can clarify who's in control, but a con is that you deprive people of that autonomy. A bureaucracy also needs written rules and regulations. That's kind of what the point is. It's all about clear expectations, uniform performances, etc. And then we have impersonality. It's all about how you want everyone unbiased and equal, but I mean, even the word doesn't sound too hot you know, make people feel like machines instead of actually letting them be themselves, having fleshed out opinions, all that. Last thing I said here was employment based on qualifications. You know, in a bureaucracy, you employ people based on their qualifications, not favoritism. So I wouldn't hire someone because they're my friend's kid. I'd hire someone because they have a college degree and experience based on what I want. On a similar note, there's a term called McDonaldization, where businesses just try to adopt fast food habits, which really just means efficiency, predictability, and control in everything. So just like, you know, if you order a Big Mac at McDonald's in like a Seattle and then one in New York, you're going to get relatively the exact same order. You know, there's a routine now for so many things in our lives that before there wasn't really one. So that term McDonaldization kind of really sums that up. Basically says our lives are getting way more efficient, predictable, etc. So we went pretty deep into social behavior, including things like discrimination, altruism, etc. But there's always a biological reasoning for things like that. So in the next few minutes, we're going to shift from talking about society to going back to the roots here, talking about the basic animal social behavior, kind of getting to the biology side of it just for a bit. So animals that communicate in four broad ranging ways, sound, chemical signals, somatosensory communication, and visual cues. Now be aware, communication in this sense doesn't just mean animal to animal. Animals communicate with themselves and with the environment. So sound is pretty obvious. I mean, languages are sounds, right? Mating calls are sounds. It's fast. It can reach many different animals. The only thing is it's not that private. Then there's chemical signals, things like pheromones, which are scents animals release, sometimes used for mating, sometimes used for dominance, but the release of a chemical smell is normal. Somatosensory communication is important too, things like touch and movement. You know, for somatosensory communication, a good example is a mating dance. And lastly are visual cues. They're often used to find a mate too, like different colors on a bird. So as you can see, mating, obviously a huge part of communication. Most of those examples I talked about were about mating. What you got to know is there's varied mating strategies. There's random mating, assortative mating, and disassortative mating. So random mating is pretty simple. Animals just say, screw it. They mate with anyone and everyone. Everyone is equally likely to mate, and they're not really influenced by the environment or any social limitation. Assortative mating is different. It's non-random and basically animals with similar personalities mate with other animals of similar personalities. So a man who's 6'2 mating with a woman who's 6 foot is assortative. A blonde man mating with a blonde woman, that's assortative. The con of assortative mating is there's a risk of inbreeding because obviously those that are more genetically similar share characteristics. Lastly is disassortative mating. It's the opposite where those with different personalities and characteristics mate with each other. 
A woman who's 4'11 mating with a man who's 6'6 is disassortative. There's increased genetic diversity here. So you might ask, what is the best? Well, it's assortative because the risk of inbreeding is present, but it's low. And the reward of having the survival of the fittest action going on outweighs the risk of genetic abnormalities. So if two large animals mate in an environment where large animals are the best, they have kids that are more likely to survive. But if it was disassortative, they'd have kids who are kind of medium sized. So they're less likely to survive in that environment. All right, so I don't know if you guys have heard of this thing called game theory. It basically analyzes rational decision making and it tries to predict a strategy. So it's used in a wide range of things. You know, poker players, for example, they use game theory. They try to study and understand how their opponents will act and react. Well, we also use game theory to study evolution. So evolutionary game theory talks about who would be the best fit for the environment, who can survive and who can pass on their genes. So as you know, reproduction and the environment, they're big factors for evolution. So they're also big factors for the evolutionary game theory. So how the environment changes someone's actions is considered rational decision making. You know, if we apply that to animals, let's say there's two monkeys in Brazil. They're living on the outskirts of the Amazon rainforest. One is named Ben. The other is named Dover. So we got Ben and Dover here, otherwise known as Ben Dover. They interpret that humans are coming in and destroying their environment that they live in. Ben decides he'd rather go deeper in the rainforest, find a better environment. But Dover, you know, Dover's lazy. He says, screw it. I'll just mate here. Well, which monkey is more likely to pass on their genes? Ben, who's in a way better environment, or Dover, who's in an environment that's crumbling around him? Obviously, Ben. Only caveat of the evolutionary game theory is that it involves intentional reasoning, like I said, when really decisions in the wild might not be conscious. You know, Ben might just be feeling like exploring, so he travels a little bit deeper in the rainforest and then mates instead of the actual thought process of, oh crap, my home's getting destroyed, I gotta run. So we're ending learning objective eight with Bendover. We're gonna start with uh, learning objective nine, society and culture. The first part here is about social structures. Now we can look at it in two ways. There's uh, macro sociology and micro sociology. Macro sociology is where you look at the bigger perspective, you know, whole civilizations or whole populations. Micro sociology is more zoomed in. You look at the face-to-face interactions, families, schools, etc. Either or, you know, they're both sociology. With sociology, you have to know the three pillars of society and production of a personality. There's education, family, and religion. So a large part of who we are stems from education. I've talked about this before, but you got to know about that hidden curriculum, you know, that stuff that's taught in schools indirectly, like how to treat your peers, waiting your turn, stuff like that. Teachers actually often indirectly enforce that hidden curriculum just based on their expectations for students. Family, that's also a huge part of sociology. You learn different traits from your families, but I feel like we've gone over that before. So religion, that's one thing too. We haven't really discussed that before when we talk about pillars of society. Religious beliefs, they shape society. So in Christian societies, Sunday is often the day off. In Muslim societies, Friday, you know, they have a few hours off for prayer. Religion shapes how society operates. And a vocab word you got to know regarding this is ecclesia, E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A, ecclesia. Those are dominant religions that include most of the members of the society. So in Sweden, that's Lutheranism. In Pakistan, that's Islam, etc. Over time, societies often go towards secularization, which is when societies become more secular or more non-religious. If you look at the United States, for example, they're way more secular than before. You know, Sundays, they aren't off for most corporations besides, of course, Chick-fil-A. So we had education, we had family, and we had religion. Those are some social institutions that influence us, but on a much less conceptual note, we have a few others, government, economy, and medicine. So honestly, these aren't really that high yield. They're pretty common sense as well. I just say, know that the government influences society, know what communism is, which is a community in which all property is owned by that community. And then a monarchy, which is a government embodied by one person. So communism, monarchy, not too horrible. Economy is the same way. You know, know about capitalism, which is private ownership of production. And that's based on supply and demand. And then there's socialism, which is common ownership of production. It's focused on human needs and economic demands. So most people consider universal healthcare a human need and thus socialist to a degree. 
But you know what? I'm going to stop talking about that because socialism versus capitalism, not really a debate I want to get into. All right. So in our next subject here, in a functionalist society, we really all have our own part of society, but we value certain jobs differently. People value jobs that have a high amount of specialization. So for some people, garbage men are not as respected as a neurosurgeon. But you got to remember, this, of course, stems deeper than just effort. You know, not everyone has the proper resources to specialize their career. And then the last social institution you got to know about is medicine and healthcare. You know, the fun stuff, right? So this is basically all just vocab words you got to know. Medicalization, it's when human conditions that before people were like, whatever, pretty normal, they get defined as a medical condition. It also stems a bit more than that. It's the progression of medicine into a business of sorts. So an example of medicalization in the traditional sense is alcoholism. You know, 200 years ago, drinking excessively wasn't really thought of as a disease, but now we know it is. Medicalization isn't always a negative term. Like I said, with alcoholism, it's actually good we classify it as a disease now. But medicalization kind of gets labeled as overprescription of unnecessary pills. And of course, that's pretty negative. Another word you got to know is sick roll. You know, if you're sick, you're expected to take some time off. But if you don't come back firing on all cylinders, you're kind of seen with disrespect when it's, of course, normal to slowly get back into the swing of things. With healthcare, something that's been a talking point now for the last several years in the United States is the massive inequalities in terms of access to healthcare. So the old and the young, they're covered, but adults are in an awkward position. Of course, we have things like the Affordable Care Act, which gives people access to insurance, but usually the insurances have incredibly high premiums and deductibles that it doesn't really make sense. You know, things like the Affordable Care Act, they've undoubtedly helped many people get insurance. And as someone who works in a private practice right now, I can say I've seen many patients that have come in just because they can afford to with the ACA. But for some people, you know, saying they have access to insurance with the Affordable Care Act is like saying they have access to a Ferrari just because they can walk into the Ferrari showroom. So ACA, that's a topic you got to know even in the psychology part. But moving on from that, let's talk about social epidemiology. That's looking at health disparities through things like race, gender, income distribution, and more. Remember when we talked about macro sociology? Social epidemiology is that. It's important to know that those with more social advantages usually get more distribution of healthcare services. So with all these things involving healthcare, not really something to memorize, just something to be comfortable with. All right, so to end this episode, I'm going to talk about five concepts. Functionalism, conflict theory, social constructionism, symbolic interactionism, and the feminist theory. So moving on from social institutions here, let's talk about functionalism. This is made by Emil Durkheim. This is important, so pay attention. He looked at society on a large scale, so that's macro sociology. He thought about how each part keeps society stable. To know functionalism, you got to know something important. Durkheim thought it was a balancing act between institutions and social facts. So institutions and social facts, they're balancing here. We know what institutions are, basically structures that meet the needs of society things like education systems, financial institutions, etc. Also actually includes things like marriage as well. So institutions, they're structures that meet the needs of society. Social facts, there's something that's hard to understand, but just look at the name. It's a fact of social life. Not a fact of your life, not a fact of my life, society's life. A good example of a social fact is social change, which is the progression of change that leads to, you know, women getting voting rights, LGBT communities being allowed to get married, stuff like that. It's a collective movement that doesn't depend on one person or another. It depends on society. Another big example is language. It's a collective production that'll be there after we die because it's ingrained in society. So Durkheim, he thought a society was dependent on the structures that made it, just like a cell is dependent on the organelles inside of it. There are manifest functions, like when a business provides a service. You know, McDonald's giving me a burger, that's a manifest function. But also there are latent functions, which aren't really intended. Schools exposing students to new activities outside of school is an example of that. With functionalism, just know Durkheim really tried to push the idea that, you know, institutions are a ship, society is the sea. Everyone adjusts and changes to keep the function, but it also works the opposite way. Institutions calm society and allow the flow that makes society successful and functional. 
So society needs institutions, institutions need society. So when I talked about functionalism here, I said it was a large scale perspective. I said it looked at all the structures in society and how they have to adapt to the tides of change, but also how social institutions, those are pretty important to society itself. Yeah, so functionalism, it's macro sociology, but symbolic interactionism, that's a smaller scale view. Symbolic interactionism, it focuses on the small interaction between individuals in a society. And this concept thinks society is just a buildup of all those little small interactions. It was made by George Herbert Mead, who we talked about in the last episode because he made social behaviorism. Mead made the idea, but he never published it. So his student, Herbert Bloomer, recycled it and he released it. So symbolic interactionism and social behaviorism, they're pretty linked here. So to get a better understanding of symbolic interactionism, let me just clear up social behaviorism a bit. So just as a reminder, social behaviorism is when people make their self-images through interactions with other people. So Mead thought Freud was tripping. Freud thought personality was all about those biological drives. Mead was like, nah, bro, you got it all wrong. It's made only through social experiences. So he swung the pendulum the complete other way. Mead said the use of symbols like language and numbers was what we use to convey meaning. And you can kind of see the link happening here between social behaviorism and symbolic interactionism, you know, symbols, symbolic interactionism. So social behaviorism, it was all about empathy. Mead thought that social experiences really depend on us taking the role of others, seeing how others would react to things, all that stuff. That kind of led to his concepts of I and me which we talked about last episode too, but basically I is the objective one, you know, it initiates everything and me is the self that changes depending on how people respond. So if I open the door for someone, the I is what opens the door for them. But if they go, oh, thank you, you're so kind. The me is the response to that. I continue the action of opening the door as it's a response to a social interaction that I had with others. So that was social behaviorism. And like I said, symbolic interactionism is basically that, We get our meanings of things from others and everyone has different views on things based on where they get that meaning from. So if I said I liked reading books, a symbolic interactionist would say, I liked reading because past experiences tied with reading. Like maybe I went to the library with my family every weekend when I was a kid or something, you know, but maybe a kid who hates reading now was that way because he got bullied for reading when he was a kid. So social interactions develop our meanings of things. All right, so functionalism was made by Durkheim. Symbolic interactionism was made by Mead. But a big one we got to talk about here is conflict theory made by Karl Marx, pretty popular guy. Conflict theory focuses on the inequalities of different groups in society. So with conflict theory, they think that there's a gradual progression, you know, from feudalism, which is about land ownership, and it was pretty common in the medieval times, then it shifts to capitalism, and then it shifts to socialism. So Marx had an idea of a thesis and an antithesis. And when they clash, a new synthesis must be formed. So for example, a thesis in the 19th century Europe was that high class ruled everything, and that was a norm. So the antithesis was that the working class demanded change. Another example is equal rights for all races or women's rights. What you have to know about conflict theory is that it explains what happens when conflicts come and what Marx thought was that there was a gradual progression of society, you know, like I said, from feudalism to capitalism and finally socialism. So let's compare a symbolic interactionist with a conflict theorist. Imagine if there's a political protest happening, a symbolic interactionist, they would be looking at how the protesters act, how their signs and symbols convey their meaning. A conflict theorist, on the other hand, would look at the class difference between the protesters and those they're protesting against, you know, maybe developing a thesis, which is the norm at that time, and the antithesis, which the protesters are fighting for. And then there is the feminist theory. Now, this theory at surface level might sound different from the other conceptual theories we had so far. You know, functionalism, symbolic interactionism, and conflict theory. But the feminist theory it's a conceptual theory as well. It's a macro perspective and it's called the feminist theory because it was a perspective made from the feminism movement. Now, it's important to know that the feminist theory came from the conflict theory. So the conflict theory, like I said, it's about an antithesis happening that clashes with the thesis. And one example I mentioned was women's rights. The feminist theory decided to look at women's roles in education, family, and the workplace and say like, yo, women are facing discrimination, oppression, you know, all that. 
So the feminist theory had four types, four kind of subcategories. Those were gender differences, gender inequality, gender oppression, and structural oppression. So gender differences talks about the differences in gender in how we're raised. The stereotype is that women are soft and submissive and they have to stay home while the men go out to war. Gender inequality views our society as a patriarchy and the stereotype of men being the head of the family, you know, having full control. And, you know, that actually has married women often taking more stress than married men or single women. So remember a while back we talked about that learned helplessness. Well, a perceived lack of control leads to a decrease in health and well-being. Gender inequality also relates to boys. The sense that they had to constantly be leaders means that they also had to constantly suppress their emotions and frustrations. You know, they couldn't really show any emotion. And then there was gender oppression, which takes it a step further, saying that women are not only unequal, but they're also oppressed and abused. And last but not least is structural oppression. That's a fourth pillar of the feminist theory. It talks about how women's oppression and inequality is due to capitalism, patriarchy, and racism. So structural oppression is the one that's most similar to the conflict theory because it states the thesis or the norm is that women are like the working class and they're exploited and the feminism movement kind of wanted to stop that. Now, it's important to note that the feminist theory wasn't out there saying, screw men, women are the best. It just wanted to highlight the differences in how men and women are treated by the societal norms. It's an offshoot of the conflict theory. All right, so the last big theory here, you know, it went over uh, functionalism, symbolic interactionism, conflict theory, and feminist theory. This last one is social constructionism. Now, the thing that sucks in psychology is how many words sound the same. Like even myself, I got tripped up for a second because I swore we talked about social constructionism before, you know, in the last episode, but it was, of course, social behaviorism. An important tip is whenever you get tripped up on stuff like this, just make a list and hammer those down. You know, if I was studying for the MCAT now, which thank God I'm not, I definitely hammer in the differences between social constructionism, which is a theory on how society is made by the concepts us humans produce. And then social behaviorism, which, like we talked about just now, is about how the mind and body are kind of one unified piece, and social experiences our body faces shapes the personality in our mind. A good way to define social constructionism is that people make their social and cultural worlds at the same times those worlds make them. So it argues people shape their realities through social interactions. You've probably heard the word social construct before. Probably, you know, the the phrase gender is a social construct or maybe, you know, masculinity is a social construct. Those are, you know, some theories that match with the feminism theory that we talked about before. A social construct is something everyone in society agrees to treat a certain way, regardless of what it actually holds in value. Money is a social construct because we put value on a piece of paper depending on what numbers are on it. Society agreed to the construct that paper money meant something, so everyone just went with it. It gets even deeper here. Social constructionism at the surface says, like I said, people make their social and cultural worlds at the same time the worlds make them. But, you know, real social constructionists get even deeper. They start asking if knowledge is even real. If it doesn't exist outside of human society, does it even exist at all? So that sounds like a total stoner thought, but I mean, so does a lot of other psychological concepts. But wait, there's more. Social constructionism also questions if our concept of ourselves even is real. You know, our identity is made by reflection of the people around us. So if the people around us weren't present, who would we be? That's some pretty deep stuff, I'll be honest. All right, so we basically conclude social constructionism is a trip, but there's two types. There's weak social constructionism that dips its toes in. It says that social constructs are based on brute facts. So weak social constructionism admits that there are brute facts in the world. You know, a rock is a rock. It's a real thing. It's not just a concept in our mind. Strong social constructionism commits the whole way. They say, nah, even brute facts aren't even real. Knowledge is a social construct. So everything that we say is true isn't true. It's just what we say it is. No facts exist. That's what strong social constructionism is. The main criticism for social constructionism is that it focuses on just humans and their thinking. It doesn't really consider the world around us. You know, like a tree is definitely a tree. It's not a figment of our imagination, you know? All right. So to go through those big conceptual theories that I kind of ended here with, from the small scale view to the large scale views, 
So symbolic interactionism is a small scale view because it focuses on those day to day social interactions. It was made by Mead and symbolic interactionism thinks we get the meaning of everything through interactions with other people. It's heavily tied to social behaviorism. And then we have social constructionism. It's a small scale view in a sense because it talks about shaping reality through social interaction, but it's also kind of a large scale too because lots of the concepts have that large scale perspective, like money being a social construct. Social constructionism has two trains of thought, weak social constructionism that acknowledges there's brute facts in life and strong social constructionism, which thinks all of reality is dependent on language and social habits. Functionalism, it's a large scale view. Durkheim thought that institution and social facts had to be balanced. So society and institutions, they're joined at the hip. Society adapts to institutions and institutions must adapt to the waves of society. Conflict theory, it's also a large scale view. It was all about how there's inequalities of different groups in society and there's a gradual progression towards equality. There's a thesis, which is kind of like the norm. And so a thesis is like the rich owning everything. And then there's an antithesis, which is the desire for the working class to own more. So those clash conflict theory. Feminist theory, it's a large scale view that focused on the inequality of genders. And it had four pillars that we talked about. Those were gender differences, gender inequality, gender oppression, and structural oppression. So just like that, we are done with this episode. Appreciate all the support so far. Keep grinding away. I know you guys are going to do great. If you've come this far, I mean, it'd be awesome if you could subscribe or rate this podcast if you're on the Apple Podcast app. If you're too lazy, then don't worry about it. It's all good. Uh, I knew it was all very sociology focused, but just as we've been doing, I'm going to run through everything one more time so you kind of have that high yield summary of the stuff you got to know. So off the bat, we talked about geographical proximity and the mere exposure effect. The mere exposure effect says repeat exposure to something novel or new, it increases our liking for that. So it happens a lot with music. You think something is trash at first, you keep listening to it, and you end up loving it. We also talked about physical attraction. There's things that are universally attractive like skin clarity, body symmetry, making a podcast about the MCAT, and good hygiene. But there's specifics for each gender. For men, it's a muscular body, strong jaw, etc., For women, it's that waist-to-hip ratio, high cheekbones, and more. Most important thing here is to know sexual dimorphism reigns supreme. So sexual dimorphism, it's the differences in size and appearance between sexes. An important study we went over was the Harlow monkey experiment. They basically separated newborn monkeys from their mothers at birth. They gave them a choice between two monkey-looking structures that they made. One of them, it looked like their mom, but it was made out of wire, and another looked like their mom, but it had a nice warm cloth blanket on it. The monkeys chose the cloth blanket mother lookalike, and then they did everything with it. They ate with their mom, they slept with that blanket mom, etc. The blanket mom was comfy and secure, and the baby monkeys got attached. So that relates to secure and insecure attachment. There is another study by Mary Ainsworth, that saw how babies reacted to their mothers leaving the room and coming back. So of course, babies are going to cry. They're going to get stressed out when their mom leaves. But if they were still upset when their mom came back in the room, they were insecurely attached. If they were relieved when she came back in the room, they were securely attached. So that secure versus insecure stuff, it comes from parenting style. If a mom is sensitive to the child, you know, she cares for it. She's responsive. Child is securely attached. If not, the child has a risk of insecure attachment. Then we went over the three parenting styles, authoritarian, permissive, and authoritative. Remember authoritarian, the E-N part, you know, authoritarian and authoritative, they sound super similar, but they're pretty different. Authoritarian, it's the bad one. Authoritative is the best one. The best way to understand that is that the last three letters of authoritarian is I-A-N. So just make up a character in your head named Ian, who's that authoritarian, strict parent, You know, authoritarian Ian has high expectations for his kids, doesn't congratulate his kids on their success. Kind of just a mean dad, you know. Authoritative, on the other hand, is when the parents bond with their kids almost as friends, but they also have high demands. They want their kids to reach their potential and the parents get happy when the kids do so. If your parents want you to be doctors and they're rooting for you during your pre-med journey, they're authoritative parents. Then there's permissive. The parents are almost too chill. They're like your homies. They have little expectations for you. So they don't really push you to achieve things. 
we talked about aggression, but what you got to take from that section is that number one, the frustration aggression principle, where frustration leads to anger, which leads to aggression. So frustration, anger, aggression. I mean, the name has two out of the three steps right there, frustration, aggression principle. Then there's the reinforcement modeling where people get more aggressive if they get positive reinforcement. Uh, You know, let's go back to the parenting, for example. Let's say there's a parent that gets frustrated when their kid has temper tantrums and they just cave in whenever their kid throws a temper tantrum. Well, the kid knows it works. They're going to keep throwing temper tantrums. So that's reinforcement modeling. Like I said before, it doesn't only apply with aggression. Reinforcement modeling is pretty broad. Altruism, it's another one. It's doing something without the expectation of a reward. You know, there's some vocab words here you got to know. There's kin selection. We're more altruistic to people who are related to us. There's reciprocal altruism, which is when we're nicer if we know we're going to see that person again. Explains why people let loose when they know they won't be seeing someone again. And then there's cost signaling. You're signaling to others that you give things, you're a nice person, and you're trustworthy. People trust you more if you help others. After that, we switched gears to talking about social stuff, and I threw a ton of vocab words at you guys. So ascribe statuses are stuff we get at birth, not really something you can earn. If you're the Prince of Luxembourg, that's an ascribe status. Achieve status, that's something you can earn. You know, getting that doctor before your name, that's a status you can earn. Role strain is when you have tension within one status. Role conflict is when you have a conflict between different statuses. You know, that shouldn't be too hard to confuse. A conflict requires two parties, right? But when we talk about someone or something getting strained, it's usually an individual thing. Then we talked about the dramaturgical approach by Irving Goffman. So Irving Goffman, dramaturgical approach. Basically, the dramaturgical approach says people guide and control how they're seen. Goffman thought people had two parts of dramaturgy to them. Dramaturgy, it's basically the theory of drama. So think of it like a play. There's a front stage and a backstage. The front stage is what the crowd sees. It's what shows up in a social setting. The backstage is way more private. You know, it's when the play's over and you can just be yourself. So front stage is what your teachers see. Backstage is when you're just chilling in your apartment. After that, we went over discrimination and prejudice. Discrimination is a treatment. Prejudice is an attitude. We went over side effect discrimination, which is where the effects of discrimination affect the person in other ways. And past and present discrimination, where stuff done in the past even if it's changed, has consequences for people in the present. Then we, we moved on to organizations. We talked about three different types of organizations. There's utilitarian, normative, and coercive. Utilitarian is where people are paid for their work. So think of just a normal job. Normative organizations is when people come together and unite for a common goal or belief. So think of religion, but normative organizations are also used for prestige. So people might join a fancy country club so they can hang out with fellow wealthy people. You know, that's a normative organization. And lastly, coercive organizations. It's where people are forced. The most obvious example is prison. We went over bureaucracies and talked about Max Weber and his five characteristics of it. Number one, division of labor. Two, hierarchy of organization. Three, written rules and regulations. Four, impersonality. And five, employment based on qualifications. To remember that Weber's theory of bureaucracy had five characteristics, just think of Weber's name. Weber has five letters and there's five characteristics of bureaucracies. There was McDonaldization, which is where businesses just try their best to be efficient, monotonous, and predictable. Just like a Big Mac in San Diego is the same one as one in Miami. You know, people want businesses where they can rely on the product being something they know. We moved on to animal communication for a few minutes. We uh, talked about the four broad ranging ways, you know, animals communicate. There's sound, chemical signals, somatosensory communication, and visual cues. And then we also talked about how animals mate, random mating, assortative mating, and disassortative mating. Assortative mating is when an animal, let's say a dog, mates with another dog that has similar features. You know, if they're tall, they'll mate with tall dogs. Disassortative mating is when they mate with those that have different features. Tall dogs, for example, would be mating with smaller dogs. The best here is assortative because, yeah, there might be a risk of inbreeding if they're going for other dogs that are similar in physical features, but evolutionarily, it usually just works out better. We talked about the game theory, which analyzes rational decision-making and tries to predict it. Well, we focus on the game theory being applied to evolution. Evolutionary game theory talks about who would be the best fit for the environment, who could survive and pass on their genes. Reproduction and the environment are the biggest factors for the evolutionary game theory. You know, how the environment changes someone's actions is considered rational decision-making. 
we use the iconic example of the two homies, Ben and Dover, a.k.a. Ben Dover. Let's say there's two monkeys in Brazil that are living on the outskirts of the Amazon rainforest. One was named Ben, other was named Dover. They interpret that humans are coming in, destroying the environment they lived in. And Ben was like, you know what? Let me go deeper in the rainforest. I'll find a better mate there. But Dover was lazy. He said, screw it. I'll just chill out here on the outskirts of the Amazon rainforest. Get my whole home destroyed by deforestation. And he tries to find a mate there. Well, which monkey is more likely to pass on their genes? Ben is in a much better environment or Dover who is in an environment that's getting destroyed by deforestation. The only caveat of the evolutionary game theory is that it involves intentional reasoning when really decisions might not be conscious. Ben might just be feeling like exploring so he travels a little deeper in the rainforest and then mates instead of an actual thought process of, oh crap, my home is getting destroyed, I gotta run. So that was how we wrapped up learning objective eight. Learning objective nine, we talked about social structures, but we started with macro sociology and micro sociology. Pretty self-explanatory, but macro sociology, look at the populations, look at a lot of people. Micro sociology, just look at those small face-to-face interactions. We had a crap ton of social institutions that we talked about. There was the deep ones, which were education, family, and religion. And then the more concrete ones like government, economy, and medicine. I mean, it's honestly nothing too crazy. We learn different traits from our family, religious beliefs shape society, and education, specifically the hidden curriculum, that shapes us when we're young. With government, economy, and medicine, it's nothing to really study, just be comfortable with it. Terms like capitalism and communism for the economy part, and things like medicalization and social epidemiology for the medicinal part. So medicalization is how we classify things now as diseases that, you know, before we wouldn't even think of them as diseases. An example I used was alcoholism. Social epidemiology is looking at health disparities through things like race, gender, income distribution, and more. And then I finally ended the episode with five concepts, functionalism, conflict theory, social constructionism, symbolic interactionism, and the feminist theory. But I think I've honestly talked about those five so much at this point, you guys are probably good. So just like that, we're actually done with this episode. Again, thank you guys for listening. Appreciate the support. It means the world. So I try to go over the bulk of the content, you know, what I thought was high yield and reasonable to be tested on. But again, this should just be a supplemental source for your MCAT prep. But I think you guys know that by now. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email me at growseriesmcat at gmail.com. That's G-R-O seriesmcat at gmail.com. Go kill that MCAT and catch you guys on the next episode.